We're going to finish off um, the wee series we've been doing in, in Elijah. We'll finish that off tonight by looking at the, the call of Elisha, how he hands on his ministry. And we're going to read from 1 Kings chapter 19 and from verse 19. So that's 1 Kings 19 from verse 19. And we read, So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate it. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. Thank God for his word. And this morning we were looking again in a series in First Peter, the call to baptism. Tonight we're going to look at this call to Elisha. We're going to look through that at the call to discipleship, but another thing God calls us to be as his people. He he issues a call to us to be a people of compassion. So let's just show something of that as we come and pray together now. Father, there are so many different situations going on in our world just now, and and often the, the news picks them up, the TV, radio, and for a little while, we're just so aware of, of what's going on. We've already been told that the refugee situation continues. People continue to come, but because it's not in front of our face, we tend to forget about that. But Father, today there is another situation of great need that we are so aware of, and it's the need of those people in Indonesia who've been hit by this series of terrible disasters that seem whole families wiped out, communities brought to nothing, towns and villages destroyed. Father, we pray for those people there that they'll turn to you in their need, that they'll be a true community and that they'll seek to help one another rather than looking for how they can best care for themselves. We pray that the government of Indonesia will do all that is in their power to supply the resources, the food and different equipment that's needed for people to survive and then that there'll be a real effort to rebuild these communities. And Father, we pray for the world around that each nation and each group of people will seek to do all they can to be part of the solution to this terrible problem. We pray for us as your people that you'll give us compassion that leads to action for these need situations around the world, but particularly in Indonesia now. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, tonight, as I've said, I want us to finish off this series of Elijah by by focusing in here on an extremely significant moment in his life. As here he he hands over his ministry to this young man, Elisha, 
who will in fact be the, the dominant character in much of what we're going to be looking at in the course of this evening. And this is going to lead us to look, as I've said, at a subject of absolutely crucial importance. The subject of discipleship. For as you'll see as we, we get into things here, that essentially was what Elijah was initiating Elisha into here. The ministry of being a disciple, of being a faithful, obedient follower of our God. But we need to say, though, I think right at the very beginning here, that we won't from this little incident be able to gain anything like a, a kind of full-blooded biblical picture of what it means to be a, a disciple. But we will be able to gain a few pointers. And how, in, in my opinion, in the church of today, we need these kind of pointers. And I tell us what I'm, I'm going to try and say, what I'm going to go on to say. Let me just um, share with you a quote from the late David Watson. Uh, it's as up to date now as it was when he said it. It springs to my mind whenever I think about discipleship. And this is what he said. Christians in the West have largely neglected what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The vast majority of Western Christians are church members, pew fillers, hymn singers, sermon tasters, Bible readers, even born-again believers or spirit-filled charismatics, but not true disciples of Jesus. If we were willing to learn the meaning of true discipleship and actually to become disciples, the church in the West would be transformed and the resulting impact on society would be staggering. This is no idle claim. It happened in the first century. Now, do you see what, what David Watson's saying? I'm sure you do. That there are actually very few Christians in the church of today who are ready to get down to the real business of 100% following of the Lord. We're prepared at times to do all sorts of other things, to kind of play at the Christian life, fill up our time in a variety of different ways. In fact, at times it seems we're ready to do virtually anything, so long as we can keep up that pretends to others and ourselves that we really are living the Christian life, when actually, in reality, in terms of what it really means to be a Christian, actually, faithfully, obediently following the Lord wherever he leads, being disciples, which is the real heart of the Christian life, well, often, we're just not doing it. We're not getting down to it. Well, let's try and learn a little bit more then about discipleship, about what it means, about what it's based on, and about what it should result in that. Let's look here at Elijah and Elisha's experience and, and just try and, and put the principles that we see here into practice in our own lives. Let's then begin by looking at the man. The man being Elisha. And, and from this passage, brief as it is, I think that we can draw some background details about this man that are relevant. And from this, maybe begin to find out just what the Lord requires of men and women he calls to follow him. So the first thing I believe we can say legitimately about Elisha is that he was a wealthy man, or at least he was the son 
of a wealthy family. Now that much is inferred by the statement there in verse 19 that he was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Because you see, the custom at this time, the custom was that the person who was driving the last oxen would be either the, the, the owner of the land or the son of the family who owned it. And he went last, kind of overseeing his workers, just to demonstrate, show, underline the privileged position that he had. Now, now let me tell you that any family at this time who had 12 pairs of oxen, well, they were wealthy indeed. However, as, as human history and society and life around us today continues to tell us, wealth in itself is no guarantee of happiness. As an accessory, as an add-on, it, it can sometimes help us be helpful in our enjoyment of happiness, but there are other things. There are much more fundamental things that we need if we're going to have and build a secure basis of happiness in our lives. But it appears here that Elijah had these, or at least that he had the most important of all. He had a happy, secure home life. The best thing this world has to offer, contribute towards happiness. And I think we can deduce this from verse 21 from this farewell feast that he happily shared with those that he knew and loved. So then Elisha was a, a wealthy young man and he was a happy, contented young man. And as well as this, I don't think it's reading too much into this passage to deduce that this wealthy young man from an in, obviously influential family to deduce that he would also be an informed man. That is, in his position, he would know what was going on in the world around him. And certainly, he would know about the man and the story that at this time must have been on everyone's lips. He would know about Elijah. He would know about the prophet, about the one who everyone knew, who had without any backup fearlessly stood up and spoken the word of the Lord. The one who'd taken on all that the forces of evil could throw against him and had defeated them at Mount Carmel. But who then, suddenly and inexplicably, had disappeared right off the scene immediately after the moment of his greatest victory. Now, undoubtedly, everyone was wondering what had happened to him, wondering when he was going to return and complete that victory over Ahab and Jezebel and all these forces of evil that supported them. And I don't think it, it's speculating too much to imagine perhaps that, that even Elisha and his workers were discussing this very thing and maybe arguing, advancing their own particular theories about this, when suddenly out there on the horizon appears the figure of the very one they've been talking about. So now then, all the theories are brought to nothing, as with the presence in the presence of Elijah, they're brought face to face with the actual reality of what's to be. And it all happens, and what we're now going to move on and look at, it all happens in a moment. Or perhaps because of its significance to Elijah, it would be safer to say in the moment. 
And that moment is really captured for us in a few words, again, in verse 19, where it says, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now notice here that no words were said. No words passed between them. That's because no words had to be said. Because this act was in itself absolutely packed with a symbolic significance that made the need for any verbal communication redundant. Because you see, the prophet's special cloak was really, at that time seen, as his badge of office. So as Elijah passed on his cloak to Elisha, he was really telling him as clearly as he could have done by the most eloquent of speeches that he was passing on his ministry to him. He was saying to him, come and follow me in the faithful, obedient service of our God. Well, let's just take a bit of time and think of all that it meant for Elijah to follow Elisha in that service. Let's just think of all the implications of this decision that was to be made here in an instant, in a moment. Well, it meant, first of all, a tremendous cost. A tremendous cost right from the very outset. For immediately, it would mean the loss of his wealth and it would mean the loss of his happy, settled family life and home. But also, there was a tremendous ongoing cost. Because, you see, Elijah knew, informed man that he was, he knew that if he was going to follow Elijah, he was going to be walking right into the very thick of real spiritual battle and conflict. He knew that from this moment on, no longer would he be, in a sense, something of a spectator, but rather he would be right there in the front line in the ongoing war with evil. And as Elijah's successor, as God's foremost spokesman to the nation, then he would be the prime target for the savage assault of the evil one. And what a, a tremendous ongoing cost this would be as he brought the brunt of Satan's fury. Like Elijah before him, he would know in full, completely, the spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental cost that has to be paid for faithfully following God in a fallen world. The second thing, though, that I believe that this decision would mean for Elisha would be a real sense of purpose. For you see, Elisha knew that from that moment on, the moment he accepted this call given to him, he knew that from that moment on that he would have a real purpose in life. For from that moment on, as we just said, he would be on God's side in the great struggle against evil. And again, there's no more demanding purpose in life than this. No more costly purpose. But neither is there any more rewarding or fulfilling purpose purpose either. It's tough. Yes, it is. But what greater thing is there than to know that you're doing God's business on this earth and that in doing it, you're pleasing him. 
What can be better than that? What can matter more than that? What can be more satisfying and fulfilling than that? So it is costly. Yes, it is. But that just makes serving God all the more wonderful. The third and and final thing that this decision must have meant for Elijah as he went forward is, I believe, a great sense of assurance. And why is that? Well, because particularly of the order in which things happened here. Because notice that before he decided for the Lord, before he decided to follow the Lord, that the Lord had already decided on him. You see, it was, it was the Lord who sought him out in the person of his servant, Elijah. It was the Lord who motivated Elijah to put that prophet's cloak on his shoulders. And this as I believe is everything that we've said so far, this is entirely consistent with what the New Testament tells us about Jesus' calling of his disciples. Because Jesus said, as clearly as could be said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you. You see, before any decision we might make for Jesus, Jesus has decided for us. And it's Jesus, working within us by the power of the Holy Spirit, who convicts us and brings us to the point of decision. It's Jesus who brings across our path, who brings into our lives the various people and events and all sorts of different things that influence us and lead us to faith in him. It's all of Jesus. Ronald Wallace, he says here, We know that when Jesus confronts us in his grace, we have to decide. We know that we must choose God if we are to have God. We must seek God if we are to find God. We must lay hold of what Christ holds out to us if it is to be ours. But we know with equal certainty that when we make our response, and accept the friendship that Christ offers, that the whole event has been started by Jesus. For you did not choose me, choose me, but I chose you. Now, can you see the tremendous encouragement that that actually is? That our faith, which so often, because of our weakness, seems so feeble and so weak, it actually has at its core the strength of Almighty God. Because our decision rests on His decision. Can you see the assurance that brings that our weakness may sometimes cause our faith to to flicker? It seems as if it's almost getting blown out like that proverbial candle blown by the wind as all the powers of evil throw themselves against us. But listen, All the power of evil will never blow out that flame of our faith. Because our faith rests ultimately not upon our decision for him, but upon his decision for us. So we know then that when we feel like giving up, we know that the Lord is there. 
that he's carrying us through and that that which is most precious in this life to us, that which matters more than anything else, that our salvation rests safe and secure in our God's hands. Well, we've looked at the man and at his background, at the kind of man that I believe Elisha really was. We've also looked at the moment, at all the, the significance and various implications that were, were jam-packed into that one great moment when Elisha had to decide for the Lord, had to decide to follow the Lord. I want to finish now by just trying here to extract for you one more vitally important point as to what true discipleship is really all about. And we'll call this final moment the balance. I wanted to get another M, but hey, I worked hard, I couldn't do it. Well, what, what do we mean, though, by that when we talk of the balance? Well, I mean the kind of balance that we should strive, that we should seek to achieve in our lives and in our discipleship between our love for the Lord and our love for our family. The kind of balance that's revealed here, I believe, in the difference between this situation where Elijah allowed, in fact, even more, ordered Elisha to go back for a farewell feast with his family and his friends. The contrast between this and other incidents in the New Testament, such as that which we find in Luke 9, 59 and on, where Jesus actually takes a very different line. We read... Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, now, why is there this apparently total contradiction in approach between Jesus and Elijah? Why? And, and what is the balance which I believe this difference actually illustrates? Well, the difference, as I see it, hinges on the question of motive. You see, Jesus knew, as he alone can, that the individuals that he was concerned with were to one degree or another trying to use their families and to use their family responsibilities as an excuse for not giving him their wholehearted devotion. You see, the man who asked permission to go and bury his dead father, he isn't asking for permission to go and do something that's to happen there and then. He isn't, because if his father had actually been dead, then the local custom that was forced upon them by their climate and that continues right up to the present day was to bury the dead as quickly as possible. So if this man's father had actually just died, then he wouldn't have been there listening to and speaking to Jesus. He would have been at home mourning his father, making the arrangements, burying his father. So what he's really saying to Jesus, I believe, is, listen, Lord, in the years to come, once my father's dead, once all my family responsibilities are wound up, then I'll come to you. 
And then I'll give you that 100% devotion you demand. But not now, Lord. It's just not possible. So many others have a call on my life. This other man, however, who, like Elisha, just asked permission to go and say goodbye to his family, his case seems much more plausible. His request seems much more, in fact, it seems entirely reasonable. But you see, Jesus, who knows the secret of every human heart, he knows exactly what was motivating this man. He knew then that that behind this entirely reasonable sounding request lay precisely the same desire to try and avoid responding to his call with 100% commitment. And that this excuse here was only one, the first one, of a never-ending series of excuses that this man would try and use to avoid the claims of Jesus Christ on his life. But Elijah, though, I believe by similar insight given to him by the Lord, he knew here that he was faced with an entirely different proposition. And this young man, Elisha, this young man who merely wanted to say a goodbye to his family and then without any other ado, just go immediately with him, he knew that this request was motivated by something entirely different to that lack of devotion and commitment that Jesus later was faced by. He knew that this young man here was likely to go to the other extreme, to the extreme of fanaticism. Fanaticism where his blinkered devotion to God would lead to him ruling out any kind of real element of loving care and concern for his family, perhaps for anyone. Elijah knew that this was this young man's potential weakness. That's why in verse 20 he says, go back, go to your family. What have I done to you? Well, what then is the balance that I believe this difference here illustrates? The balance that I believe God wants his people to find in their life, and it is an expression of true discipleship. It's the balance where God is to be seen and must be practiced as being the absolute and unchallenged Lord of our lives, who must be given first place in every situation. That is the starting point for any true discipleship, for any real following of the Lord. But we're in this. Our family certainly, and in descending order, the other good God-given things of this life are to be seen as things which God as Lord would have us give a very high priority. Now, when is in these cases Jesus faced, it boils down to just a straight outright choice between God and family. You know, if it comes to that, then God must comes first. Nothing, not even family, not the very best things in life, should be allowed to challenge God's lordship, his authority in our lives. But you know, I believe the times when choices like this occur are very few and far between, if at all maybe. And in by far the vast majority of cases in life, care for the family, care for the needy, 
care for the hurting is a faithful expression of God's lordship in our lives. Is what we should be doing and what God wants us to do if we're really living as faithful disciples of the Lord. And that's the lesson. As he allowed him, in fact, ordered him to go back and share in this farewell feast with his family that Elijah was seeking to teach Elisha. To be faithful, yes. To keep that sharp edge of faith in his life, but not to allow that faithfulness to be distorted into fanaticism. Well, how can we tell when this is happening in someone's life? What about this is a key indicator, I believe. I think we see this happening when our lives are characterized by an unyielding commitment, but when at the same time we are lacking in love, lacking in compassion, and particularly maybe in loving understanding for our brothers and sisters in their weakness and failure. But to finish, what is this call to discipleship? As it's illustrated here in this life of Elijah, what does this have to say to me and you, to to our lives today? Well, okay, if you're a Christian, as you look here at the kind of 100% discipleship demands, and as you look at the kind of life balance as a disciple that you should be striving for, what kind of challenge do you feel this brings to your life? What I feel it brings to my life? Do we feel challenged because of our fanaticism? Do we? Well, maybe, though I doubt it, because I don't think fanaticism is actually a quality that's found that much in the church of today. And its absence, though not a bad thing in itself, because we don't want fanatics, yet it does point us towards, maybe, a lukewarm commitment in too many Christians in our generation. Because so often we go so far down the road with the Lord. But how many of us are actually prepared to follow him all the way? How many of us are ready to be open and absolutely obedient? So maybe is the challenge the Lord is bringing to us today, is it about a lack of that complete commitment in our lives? And is that maybe why we feel frustrated and feel as if we're failing and not fulfilling our potential as Christians. Is that our problem? Is that my problem? Is God calling us today to commit to being actually a real disciple? But what is the discipleship of Jesus? Does it have anything to say to those of us here perhaps who are not yet Christians, who don't maybe have a loving personal relationship with Jesus as Savior and Lord. Does it have anything to say? Well, it certainly tells us that there is a cost in being a Christian. There is a cost, and we should never hide that. We might not be as young and wealthy as Elisha was, but these facts underline for us that there is a cost in following our God. There is a cost in following Jesus. It will cost you, let me assure you, it will cost you to follow him. There will be an immediate cost. Because right at the very beginning, to follow Jesus, you've got to lay down authority over your own life. And you've got to give authority to him as your Lord. 
You've got to give up living first and foremost for yourself, which is the big thing in our society today, and start living with him first in everything. And there's also an ongoing cost. And that from the moment that you, by faith, unite yourself with Jesus and become a disciple of Christ, you then become a target for the forces of evil in this world that are opposed to Jesus. And let me assure you, those forces are real and they are powerful and they will strike out against you. It does cost being a Christian. But you know, let me tell you, that whatever that cost might be, it is as nothing compared to the blessings you will receive. Because from the moment you commit to follow Jesus, from that moment your sins are forgiven, you're reconciled to God and his love flows into your life. And from that moment you've then got that real purpose in life. In a world today, in a society and culture that for so many is without any purpose and meaning. You have got the greatest imaginable purpose to live for God, to glorify God in this world, in your life. And as you do this, as you seek to live for Him, and as along the way you struggle at times against the evil in this world and against your own personal weakness, you still always have that great assurance that you are safe in God's hands. That this world can hit out against you, but nothing can take you from God. That you are safe in his love now, and that one day the greatness of that love will be enjoyed by you for all eternity. So if you don't know Jesus, is he calling you tonight to that kind of life I would say if he is answer that call because there is no life better than the life that Jesus gives to his true disciples let's come and pray together Father we pray tonight that we will see what it means to actually be your disciple that you never said it would be easy you never said that we wouldn't face opposition. You never said that it wouldn't hurt. You never said any of those things. But what you said is that you love us, that you chose us, that you'll stand with us, and that you will never, ever let us go. And we know because your word tells us that there is nothing better in this life than to live for your glory, to live to please you and to know your pleasure in our lives. Lord, be with us. Help us to follow you as true disciples. This we pray now in Jesus' name.